Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you so much for how Skip has chosen to still go out to battle and, Lord, is there on the mission field on the front lines in a dangerous part of the world bringing your word to people who need it. We pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit and give him, Lord, a a supernatural utterance as he opens his mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of your gospel as he's equipping those pastors over there. Please bring him back to Albuquerque safely. And, Lord, as we open your word now, would you speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I found this little article. It's called The Seven Phases of Owning an iPod. See if you can't relate. Phase one. This is the, oh my gosh, it's so small and shiny phase. You marvel at how small and shiny it is, stealing glances whenever you can. Phase two. This is the phase where all your friends say, oh my gosh, it's so small and shiny. And you're like, totally over it. Phase three. The iPod has become a permanent part of your body. If you're not showering or communicating with someone who has the authority to fire you, your iPod is blasting in your ears. Phase four, you lose your impossibly small iPod somewhere in your home and nearly have a nervous breakdown. After eventually finding it, you seriously consider ingesting it just for safekeeping. (laughs) Phase five, you now suffer from permanent hearing damage. This does not deter you, however, from listening to your iPod at high volumes at all times. Phase six, a smaller, fancier iPod is created, and now yours is outdated and lame. It is no longer awesome. It is horribly awful, just awful. Phase seven, you upgrade and buy the newer iPod. You are now homeless and destitute and forced to live off of cardboard and small animals to survive. Well... Well, however true that is or not, no one I know of in the scriptures can relate to despair and disillusionment over material possessions more than Solomon. And tonight I'd like together to do a character sketch of the man Solomon. Now, it's no hidden fact that God uses people. We often tell each other during times of crisis or difficulty, keep your eyes off people, keep them on the Lord, brother. We usually add brother at the end. I don't know why. We do. But... It's true we should keep our eyes off people, but there is a sense in the Bible in which we are to keep our eyes on people. For example, Paul said, to follow me as I follow Christ. As well, we're told that there are those who in our lives who we have seen inherit the promises of faith, who we're supposed to follow their conduct. You know, God, when he showed up and would speak to people in the Bible, he could have just said, hi, I'm God. I'm going to tell you what to do. I mean, do you really need much more of an introduction than that? But he would often use the words, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He chose to identify himself in relation to people. And Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Have you ever been reading an Old Testament story and wondered, why is this, why has this been preserved? Why is this here? For our learning, Romans says. So we're to look back in scripture and see these characters in their trials and in their triumphs. 
and we are to learn from it. Maybe you've ever heard the phrase, history is written by the winners. That's to say that the losers aren't around to tell their side of the story, so the winners get to pretty much say how it went. Well, according to a New York Times article, history may be written by the winners, but now losers get to write the encyclopedia. And this is referring to Wikipedia, one of the websites that's come about in the last five years, and it's an online encyclopedia. Raise your hand. Who's here ever been on Wikipedia? Okay, the rest of you need to get to work there. Well, in just five years... It has become the 12th most visited site on the Internet, despite the fact they just have five paid employees. This site generates more traffic daily than the MSNBC.com and the online versions of The Times and The Wall Street Journal put together. Over 14,000 visits per second. Now, there's more information there than can you know, be calculated. It's, uh, anybody can contribute. You could write an encyclopedia article tonight. That's frightening, I think. And... There are ten times more articles on this than there is in the most exhaustive encyclopedia that's available. Well, Encyclopedia Britannica was asked what they think about it. They called it, and I quote, fatally flawed. And one fear that many have about this online encyclopedia is that the info may not be very accurate. In fact, senators have been caught having people that work for them tamper with their Wikipedia articles to delete broken campaign promises and remove allegiances to certain politicians who have fallen out of favor. Well, I'm glad that the Bible never chooses to flatter its heroes. We see them warts and all. God never uses whiteout to cover up their mistakes or edit their failures. We always read about them in bright, sometimes even harsh light as we read about their real life experiences. It's vivid in times of blessing and brokenness, successes as well as screw ups. And I, for one, am glad because it gives us realistic expectations about what walking with Jesus is really like. Have you ever read a biography of one of these fathers of church history and kind of gotten depressed reading it? I mean, it's like they woke up seven hours before the roosters crowed and had 18 hours of prayer before having their morning porridge. And you read it and you go, I'm a terrible Christian. That's not going to work. I mean, well, when we look in Scripture, we see their failures and it gives us a little bit more hope. We don't just see Noah building this ark and the eagles flying two by two through the door and him saluting them as they go in, bravely having faith, finding grace in the eyes of God. A few chapters later, we read about Noah with his drinking problem, falling asleep naked, and a whole embarrassing ordeal ensues. We get preserved for us everything that happened. It's not just Elijah with this miraculous showdown on Mount Carmel, calling fire down, yeah, you know, and the prophets of Baal getting killed. We also read about him cowering in fear, despairing of his life when a woman threatened his life. So through seeing failure and victory, we can come to this conclusion. There is hope for us today because God uses simple clay pots. What is most fascinating to me is what happens when we get into the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that faith hall of fame, and we read the stories of those same men and women who were full of failure, riddled with defeat. And now they are the giants of the faith. It's a whole different story. It's nothing about Abraham doubting and going down to Egypt. It's all about Abraham, righteous Abraham, by faith. We get to Second Peter, and Lot is described as righteous Lot. Righteous Lot? What about sniveling Lot? What about compromising Lot? No, it's righteous Lot. Then in Hebrews 11, by faith, Samson did such and such. By faith, Samson? That guy had a huge problem with chicks. I mean, come on. 
And we read, by faith, Gideon, by faith, David, by faith, Rahab, Sarah, Moses. In the New Testament, where's all the compromise? Where's all the evil? Where's all the sin? You guys, the New Testament gives us a peek through God's glasses and they're rose colored. You see, because when God looks back at these guys' lives through the lens of Jesus Christ and his blood, he sees nothing but the goodness of Jesus Christ's perfect life. How good is it that you can put your name there? By faith, Tom. By faith, Sue. By faith, Kate. Because when God looks at your life through his rose-colored glasses of the lens of Jesus Christ, he sees none of our misdeeds, but we are, in fact, white as snow. Well, Solomon is a fascinating character to study. One of the truly bright lights in Scripture. The wisest man who ever lived. The man who, along with his father, was responsible for the glory days of the nation of Israel. A man who prayed fervently that God would reveal himself through temple worship to those who were even afar off, strangers from the house of Israel. Yet, sadly enough, he ended worse than he began. And his life provides a a sobering reminder for us to finish well. Tonight in the life of Solomon, we will see passion, power, preoccupation, and finally, perversion. We'll see him move from innocent seeker when he cried out, give me wisdom, to the cynical speaker where he cried out, all is vanity. And you better believe tonight we're going to ask the question in this new year at at the front of a fresh start. How can we avoid the downward spiral illustrated in these phases of Solomon's life? How can we apply these things to our lives? First, he was passionate. Now, Solomon would have had an anything but normal childhood. His mother was Bathsheba, and his dad was none other than King David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, turn there if you will. 2 Samuel 12, verse 24 Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So David and Bathsheba have this baby boy who the Lord loves, and his name is Solomon. And yet he's given a tender nickname. The nickname is Jedidiah, a wonderful name that means beloved of the Lord. And as he grew, his father passed on to him the keys to the kingdom, the power to rule. As well, he gave him an intense love for the Lord. We should take note of this. Fathers, if we do well to to teach our sons how to throw a curveball, great. How to catch and clean a fish, awesome. A skill I, by the way, have not mastered without the gag reflex kicking in. However, that's okay. I have plenty of time to learn in Montana. Uh, That's great, though. If we teach our boys how to, to do those things that are attributed with manhood, awesome. But above all things, let's teach them how to be men after God's own heart. Women. If we teach our daughters, if you teach your daughters how to, you know, make your favorite recipe of pozole or cheesecake, awesome, you're doing good. How to, you know, love a pedicure, you're doing well as a mom. But above all things, teach your daughter that the preciousness of a woman who fears the Lord, she'll be praised that charm is deceitful and beauty is, is fleeting. 
But let's, let's give them a spiritual legacy. Then we will be truly launching our kids out as arrows straight for the target. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have King David as daddy? Imagine what it was like, you know, as he walked with him, as his dad was inspired to write a psalm. And he would just start, you know, scratching on the back of a napkin. And Solomon's watching. He's like, my dad's insane. You know, as he goes through this process, that's not a good one. David gets to harp out and starts working out the arrangement of it all. Or to be tucked in at night by him. When I was a little boy being tucked in at night, my dad would always come in and throw the covers over our heads and say, Levi, we're going camping in Colorado. And he would tell me these stories about Hector the horse. And I, I still can't get them out of my head. Sometimes I'll, you know, throw the blankets over my wife's head and say, Jenny, we're going camping in Colorado. And she'll just look at me like, you are a freak. <laughs> That's okay. Another story for another day. But what would the bedtime stories have been like here? Dad, tell me the one about when the bear attacked you. Oh, I, I, took, I took him out. With what? A slingshot. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. And then he's, tell me the Goliath one again. And he's going through all this. It would have been awesome. I was living in a cave down by the river at this point, Solomon. And his dad would just go through all these things. Solomon learned how his family became royal. How he was, his dad was the lowly son of Jesse, called by God. In that lineup there where David and all his brothers were lined up. And, and God was, you know, speaking there. And, and David was the last one. He didn't even get picked to be brought out because the prophet was discriminating and the dad was discriminating. And, you know, he learned that God doesn't care about the outward appearance, that he looks for the heart. That's what's most important to him. He also, you know, watched as his dad prepared the materials for the temple. But because he had bloody hands, he couldn't finish the job. He saw his dad fall into sin. But he also watched tear-soaked times of repentance. And when David was on his deathbed in 1 Kings chapter 2, if you'll flip there, verse 1. On his deathbed, he gave his dying words to Solomon. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me. Well, he took the advice of his dad who said, be a man. And what followed wasn't be the toughest guy on the block. Or don't take, you know, trouble from anyone. He said, be a man, love the Lord. And Solomon later would write in Ecclesiastes, seek your creator in the days of your youth. We should give God our best years. Not wait till we're addicted to drugs. We've squandered our lives. We've had several failed marriages. Then I'll come to church and serve God. As a young pastor, I constantly have older, you know, elderly folks coming to me and saying, I just wish that when I was young, I would have walked with God. I wasted so much time. Now, I love the Lord now, but I just wish I could have given God my best years. No one's ever come to me and said, you know, I wish I would have been in jail while my kids were growing up. I wish I could have blown through a few more marriages. Too bad I didn't, you know, have a couple more years to give to sin. And then I could have served God. No, everyone, it's the opposite way. We should serve God now, not put it off, but give God the choice time of our lives. His first action as king is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. If you'll flip over there. Now the king 
went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So Solomon passionately followed the Lord and took dad's plans and built the temple and had a huge dedication and gave a speech saying, God, we're giving this house to you, but you can't fit in it. The heaven and heavens of heavens can't contain you, much less the soul home. But would you please meet us here? And then the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and sheep were sacrificed and oxen that couldn't be counted. And Solomon taught the people a song and and told them to sing, God is good, his mercy endures forever. He was a passionate worshiper. This led to our second phase. He became powerful. Solomon was very powerful. Worldwide recognition. Absolute authority. He was a powerful leader. But the way he got there was through weakness. I read a story about a a four-year-old boy who was in his house and heard a noise in the middle of the night and came downstairs and saw that two men were robbing his home. So he thought quickly, ran upstairs, put on his red Power Ranger outfit, came downstairs and actually just started doing his best Red Ranger routine, and it scared the burglars off. Well, that's kind of like Solomon here. He was out of speech saying, God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm a little child, but I'll give you all that I can. And God used those humble means and amplified them exponentially. Power is all about being weak. Jesus showed this to us, that greatness comes through serving. Solomon didn't say, I'm, you know, God, I'm David's son. I have connections. I can network. I'll, I'll get some things done. You call me in a week, we'll take care of some stuff. No, he said, I, I'm humble. I can't do anything. And God chose to exalt him. In our culture, it's all about who you know and what you can make happen. Climbing to the top. When Jesus came, he came to the earth in a time when the Romans were ruling. And the culture of the day was, you know, doggy dog, crush and conquer, slash and burn. And Jesus turned that whole flow chart upside down and said, true greatness is serving. And he proved it when he stooped down and washed the feet of his disciples. And was willing to show that God in human skin could be so weak and humble. To Paul, Jesus said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul learned to boast in being weak. And so we're never at our weakest when we think we're strong. But any time that we say, God, I have nothing. Would you help me? We are at our strongest. Because full hands can't receive a gift. Well, Solomon nonetheless was aggressive dynamic and by God's Holy Spirit, a visionary. And I think we need more of this in Christianity, not this watered down version of Christianity that Saturday Night Live pokes fun at. You know, the church lady sitting at her keyboard. I'm talking about Christianity that has true faith, 
Psalms says that the wicked flee when no one runs after them, but the righteous can be bold as a lion. And Solomon had that kind of tenacity, creativity. He was a hard worker and an efficient worker. He was able to organize a workforce of 183,000 people. He had the stones hewn away from the worksite and slid into place with such precision and forethought that you couldn't slide a knife blade in between them. He demonstrated powerful leadership through weakness, but also through wisdom. We know Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And there was that story we all know where two mothers came to him, one having lost their baby in the, in the night and the other one having taken hers, both claiming rightful ownership of the baby. And Solomon sorted it out by saying, have the baby cut in two. And the mother who had her baby already dead said, fine, go ahead, I just want the top half. And the woman who truly loved the child said, no, let her keep it and raise it. And Solomon, judging and discerning the true love, said, you're the rightful mother. And the world stood in awe of his wisdom. First Kings 3, verse 28 says, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. He became basically a tourist attraction. Many came to him to hear and listen. Unfortunately, however, our third phase shows that this powerful leader slowly became preoccupied. 1 Kings chapter 6 basically shows for a whole chapter how great the temple was that Solomon built for God. And verse 38, 1 Kings 6, 38, sums it up. At the end it says, So Solomon spent seven years building the temple. But chapter 7, verse 1, says, But, that but is a huge problem, but he spent 13 years building his own house. This shows, this, this microcosm here, that the only thing that Solomon was growing to love more than the Lord was himself. Seven years for God, but then 13 years for his own crib. And I'm sure it was amazing. I'm sure it would have been on MTV in the day. But we see here this slow building preoccupation. He was engrossed with himself, absorbed in his own little kingdom. I've called this message the Solomon Complex. We could call it the United States Complex or the Orange County Complex or even the ABQ Complex because we are so enamored with building our own little places, focused on the bottom line, how much we have in the bank, and he slowly began to drift off course. But when you look back, the humble beginnings of his decline were visible. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, back as he was giving this speech, it is said of Solomon... That he loved the Lord, he walked in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now, John Corson says that this is not all in all outright paganism, that he isn't worshiping false gods here, but rather that he is worshiping Jehovah in the wrong setting. That he has taken these altars and shrines to false gods and has brought his worship of the true God there. So he's slowly starting to say, I can worship and have my religion on my own terms when God has dispelled out how he is to be worshipped. Solomon had told the people in 1 Kings 8.61, Let your heart be loyal to the Lord your God. Walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. But his heart had slowly begun to shift from loyalty. Many people are loyal to God like they are to their favorite sports team. 
That's when they're winning. That's when they're a fan. You know, people in Southern California, you want to know if they're an Angels or Dodgers fan? It all depends on the season. And unfortunately, we can have our gaze slowly shift from God through the deceitfulness of riches. (coughs) Excuse me. And it didn't make him happy. As he would slowly start to accumulate these things, Ecclesiastes documents this. As he saw it after more and more, the more he got, the more bummed out he became. And that's just how it works. You know, we always look for the next thing, the biggest thing. You know, it's funny, speaking of iPods, when you go into that Apple store that you guys now have here in Albuquerque, they don't ever tell you as you're about to check out, hey, I'd wait to buy that computer because in a few weeks they're going to unveil a newer, faster one. And if you buy this, you're just going to be disappointed later. No, they're like, oh, you need that. Oh, you need that. If you're going to be like one of those silhouette, shiny things with the earbuds hanging out, you need that now. You know, and then later it's always the next thing. And that's how sin is. There's that law of diminishing returns. The more we get, the more we need to be satisfied with the same amount of of pleasure for more amount of, of sin as we seek to fill this hole that God only should. So Solomon violated fundamental principles that cost him his inner peace. What were they? These three things he began to disobey right up front. Well, Deuteronomy 17, through Moses, you don't need to turn there, God had spelled out when the nation would ever have a king, what rules there would be for that king. And in Deuteronomy 17, it says, The king is not to multiply to himself horses, wives, nor greatly multiply silver and gold. The classic honeys, monies, and ponies. And Solomon, all throughout his reign had ignored and defied that, accumulating to himself the horses and the gold and the girls. And I would say that not a lot has changed. Now, it may just be horsepower instead of horses today. But as far as the the monies and the honeys, those are a direct parallel to our vices of, of today. The enemy doesn't have very many lures. He uses the same ones over and over again, the gold, the girls and the glory. And these things, these small compromises in Solomon's life caused him to move from the innocence of desiring wisdom to the cynicism of Ecclesiastes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And take note of this. He misappropriated God's blessings. Did you know the purpose in Solomon's life was never for him to be blessed just for him? God never intends for our blessings just to be for us. He wants us to be a blessing to others. And the dangers of success is that it can lead to excess, where we become indulgent, carnally accumulating more and more. And this isn't just for the rich. The poor can desire and have that same snare looking to get what they don't have. What's the solution? We must view ourselves as stewards. Stewards. Well, to explain that, I must turn your attention to eBay. I read an article recently by a man named Daniel Nisanoff, and he is speaking about the future of shopping. And he says, and I quote, auction culture is about to grab hold and shoppers are going to unload items through eBay and other auction sites with as much fervor as when they had originally purchased them. Before you protest and say eBay's already all the rage, know this. Of the 150 million users on eBay, less than 5% have ever sold anything. Most just buy. 
But he's predicting that many will in the future sell more and more. <clears throat> he says that 7,000 stores exist in America currently where you can drop your stuff off and they will sell it on eBay for you and give you a part of the proceeds. But here's the most interesting part. He makes this you know, judgment about our culture. He says, we are moving away from being a society of permanent owners to becoming a society of temporary owners. That's great theology. And I find myself keeping boxes when I buy things, thinking I'll keep the original packaging to get more when I sell it later. But if we spiritually are to take this advice to move from being a culture of permanent owners to becoming a society of temporary owners, to view ourselves having all the things that God has given us, not saying my house, my car, my boat, my money, my things, but rather to say God has given me of what I have. It's his boat, his car, his bankroll, his possessions, and I'll use it to bless him and be a benefit to the kingdom because we can't keep it anyway. Isn't that interesting to think about? I was recently going to buy a new inner tube for a a bicycle tire. And pulling into the parking lot at a shopping center, I saw a hearse pulling in, I kid you not, pulling a U-Haul. I thought, what does he need stuff for? He's going. What is he packed for his adventure? What, you can't bring anything with you. It's ridiculous to think of that. A U-Haul being pulled behind a, a hearse there. But that's how many act going into death with lots and lots of stuff to be auctioned off to friends and relatives at the end of your life. But rather to have a light touch on things. Well, Solomon's preoccupation caused him slowly to become perverted. Our final point tonight, perversion. He went completely AWOL. Would you turn to 1 Kings 11, verse 1? But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. What a sad story. What a sad way for this this man's life to end. How did this happen? All the small things. He chose to disobey a small thing after small thing, and they became big things. You would normally not think a melon capable of doing great damage, but I read an article recently. One melon in Cambodia killed one and injured 30 when it slid under the brake pedal of a truck. Small things can have disastrous impacts. And that's why Jesus said a little leaven can leaven the whole loaf. And the moment we see sin in our lives, we must hack it to pieces, to be ruthless. That's why Jesus would use such graphic language when he would say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand, cut it off. It's better to be rid of it than to enter to hell whole. And that's why when we see sin, we must, the moment we spot it to be sin, to, to, to apply immediately 
the blood of Jesus Christ. They have these Tide pens now. You can see them at the cash register checkout where you have this immediately in your purse. I'm sure 90% of the women in here have one in their purse even now. And you, the moment you see a stain, you don't have to wait till you get home. The moment you see it, you apply that. Well, we need spot applications of the blood of Jesus Christ the moment we see sin, not to wait till Sunday or to Wednesday night or to our next quiet time, but to immediately confess it and to repent from it. How sad that Solomon, who preached loyalty to others, himself slowly raised the pirate flag in perversion and became disloyal. As we close, I want you to notice one really important thing here. Solomon's great strength became his greatest weakness, his passion, his wisdom. You see, his wisdom led to cynicism. Knowing so much caused him to be skeptical. And those same things that made him a dynamic leader, his passion caused him to chase after wine, women, wisdom, wealth, and work. We too must watch these areas of great strengths in our lives because it has been said and well said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Maybe you're a hard worker, Well, that can lead to being like Martha, where you're always doing, always serving, and you need to just sit down and and rest at the feet of Christ. Maybe you have great smarts. Well, that could lead to pride, or maybe you're a great communicator. That could lead to you being sharp with your tongue and, and cutting people. Like Samson, Solomon ended tragically. Think of the legacy he handed to his kids. It said that there was disastrous impacts. His sons would have the kingdom literally ripped from their hands, and it wouldn't happen in his life for his father David. Imagine the legacy you're going to hand to your kids. We all will hand one, regardless of the life we live. Man, let me ask you this. If your daughter one day were to, to bring home a man, and you could be guaranteed he would treat her exactly as you have treated your wife, would that run your blood cold or thrill you? Women, if you knew with certainty your, your, your son was going to marry a woman who would be exactly as faithful or as unfaithful to him as you have been to your husband, how would that make you feel? We are handing a spiritual legacy to our kids. Alexander White said the shipwreck of Solomon is surely the most terrible tragedy in all the world. For if there ever was the shining type of Christ in the Old Testament, it was Solomon. But everyday sensuality made him in the end a castaway. If we are to do well this new year and to take these lessons to heart at the start of this 2007, we must ask ourselves this question. Which Solomon are you tonight? Which one are you? Are you the innocent seeker crying out, give me wisdom? Are you the passionate leader concerned for the glory of God? Are you indulgent tonight, carnally accumulating material possessions? Or are you cynical? All is vanity. There's no hope. There's no help. We've looked at Solomon's failures. Examine 2006. What were the biggest spiritual mistakes you made last year? We would do well to take what we've learned in hindsight. They always say that hindsight's 2020. Well, let's take our hindsight and apply it as foresight. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. And if tonight you feel despondent as though you're a failure and there's no redeeming the mess you've made of your life, know this, God has a huge eraser. God can wipe away our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. He can restore even the years the locusts destroy. And Solomon, I'm sure if he was preaching this message tonight, he would beg you, do what I said in Proverbs, not as I did in Ecclesiastes. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.